Hi, I'm James. And I'm Drew. And welcome to Graphic Support Group, a mindful podcast for the design industry and the self, where empathy and the creative cloud meet. Join us as we delve into the mind and soul of graphic design, from PSDs to PTSD. This is Graphic Support Group. episode of graphic support group i'm james i'm drew um and we're really excited here today because we have a friend of the pod and um a very special guest here Uh, we have amy fortunato who's calling in from brooklyn um amy is a designer and educator based in brooklyn as i just mentioned Um, she originally hails from southern california where she was raised um, then she attended Otis College of Art and Design, and soon after she began her working uh, with the acclaimed designer Lorraine Wilde at Green Dragon Studio. There, I think Amy was able to hone her craft and work on many projects, um, such as books and catalogs for artists. Um, but she sought to learn more about herself and her design, which motivated her to begin a deep journey into um, South Korea, um, her birthplace. There, she completed her MFA studies at Kugmin University, and upon completion, she moved to New York City, where she began teaching and uh, full-time freelancing. So we're really excited for to have her on today and share her unique journey through life and design. How's it going, Amy? It's good. Thank you for the uh, very generous introduction, James. <laughs> I'm getting better at them. <laughs> <laughs> I should have you write my bio for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe I should. That's a new, new, like, little career path I should add on to my CV. Bio writer. I mean, we always have to have a small conversation about the fact that we're in- introducing somebody uh, to, yeah. Them, yeah. to themselves. Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, how? I guess we'll, we'll do a little temperature check-in with our, our other kind of recurring question um how are you feeling about design today how am i feeling about design today um literally today i suppose i felt productive (laughs) um but i guess in the the broader sense um i think design is at a really interesting place i feel like there's a lot of questions that are happening kind of philosophically about design of like what design is which is of course is not a new discussion um but i think it's expanded not only into like what is design but also like who designs who gets Mm -hmm. to design um who gets to decide what design is um and i think those are all really interesting questions because i think my own interest in design goes beyond just the visual aspects of it um even though obviously design is so often characterized as visual communication right um but i think that the separation of those two words that communication is something in and of itself outside of the visual um so when we combine those it becomes you know what we 
know and think of as graphic design, but I think like the capital D design, <laughs> but like kind of like <laughs> larger infrastructure behind that is really interesting. Um, so yeah, I feel like we're asking a lot of questions these days, both in design education and also um, design as practice. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's, yeah, that, that question of like who gets to design, um, I think that affects me on a lot of different levels because for me and instinctually, that's a little bit for me, I, I connect it to like how design actually has been sort of widening in our culture and in the industry and where our professionalism sort of the lines between sharing our profession and also allowing tools to be ubiquitous for other people and not other people but like other professions right other maybe not you know our expert tools are becoming more accessible right our professional tools mm-hmm. and so um that kind of technological aspect but then also i think it's you know from my perspective it's also preserving our professionals uh, professional like acumen i think that and how do you preserve that in an age when it's becoming much and much more flexible um, and making that kind of a, a parent and, and, and productive for our students. Um, but yeah. Um, Definitely. Drew, does that bring up anything for you? <laughs> well, I think the who gets to design thing. I mean, that that's always been something that I've wrestled with because for the first half of my career. I don't know if you would call it that at that stage of my design career more so because I wasn't really considering myself a graphic designer for the very reason that I didn't really have training in graphic design, but I, I, I did some you know graphic design in undergrad, but I didn't go to design school and all that. So I had this sort of chip on my shoulder, but I also had this kind of mindset of like well I can learn it myself and that'll make me like you know my own version of a graphic designer but then I kind of sold myself out and like said okay I have to go to like this (laughs) prestigious design school uh which was like you know something that I'm really proud of that I was happy to do but I also like wrestle with like okay like so I just kind of bought my way in a bit uh, <laughs> oh, that's that's not how you, how it went. You definitely earned it. But um, yeah. you know, I think that is something with when you think about a field like graphic design, which is in some ways, you know, it's not like it's not a life saving field, and <laughs> and it also doesn't require like credentials to do. I mean, you can have them, and and it also like only certain people care. Like if you told you know a random person, I went to get a master's in graphic design they'd be like i didn't even know that existed so like (laughs) it uh it is all relative i guess so i find that interesting that there is like even in something like this there's that kind of like gatekeeping and sort of like who's in and who's out mentality which does really reveal itself once you have been to a program like that you start thinking like that too unfortunately like you're like where'd this person go to school like yeah. what is there and it's just so sort of oddly yeah toxic and you don't you can't control it like it just it's part of how how you think i don't know so yeah. i find that yeah. interesting and troubling. 
Yeah, there's kind of a very somewhat of a gatekeeping, but also like circular economy that happens with the system because your degree means something because of accreditation, because of credentials and so on. And so if, if everything gets leveled to where, you know, there is no distinction, there is no hierarchy and everything can becomes flattened, then you lose that (laughs) acumen that was, that was earned. So I think it is, it is tricky, right? Because like, and I had a friend who was, um, coming from Europe who talked about educational systems and how everyone has a master's degree. So it doesn't really mean anything anymore because everyone has one. So in terms of looking for a job, it doesn't actually give you an edge. It just becomes the same equivalent of, you know, having a high school degree or having like a bachelor's degree. So there is like, there's this kind of question of, right, we want, we want everyone to be able to succeed and to do things. But then if everyone does have that, what does that mean for the field, right? Like if anyone can be right. a graphic designer, then what is that? Right. What yeah. does that I mean, it is, it's also like a highly, I mean, like any one of these fields, right? It's sort of like a highly sought after thing. Like people mm-hmm. think that sounds fun. <laughs> about the job you know it's not like the type of job where people are like oh you do that that's so i feel so bad you have to get up every morning and like (laughs) make stuff on your computer like and get paid to like pick colors and like whatever like people simplify it Mm -hmm. uh so i think for that reason it is something that you kind of try to keep precious or something it's like you know, yeah, to protect I don't them. want everyone to just think they can do it. But at the same time, like, I don't want people. To, yeah, I don't want not that I don't want everybody to think that they can do it. But I don't want everybody to, like, just think it's something anybody can do that, like, right, doesn't right. require any sort of, like, actual talent or, like, real training of any kind. Yeah. But I also wish that it didn't. <laughs> like, I wish that everybody could just be a graphic designer. So, yeah. Yeah, I think like also a... it's like this this question and this conversation brings up something that I'd like to return to later in our conversation, but just questions of access, right? Because mm-hmm. um, also like we have to be re- like I'm something someone who I think I'm always reminding myself that like design education is not just about skills, but it is um, skills are a really big part of our profession and our and our endeavors, but. Um, and I think that misconception and, and kind of writing that line between skills and thinking and practice, I think, is something that, you know, we have to kind of also that's sort of that's those are the kind of things that we're trying to protect, I guess. I think like, yes, everyone can use Photoshop, but um, to what ends and, and how you use Photoshop is, is sort of the uh, the next level i guess i don't know i mean i think that <laughs> that's an interesting point that you say too because you're talking about skill that that usually is like technical people think of you know and mm-hmm. i think like in any master's program probably it's similar it's like you don't go to business school necessarily for the skills of like learning how to conduct business necessarily that's like part of it right, right? but it's also like 
well, I don't know why I'm talking about business school, but I think like <laughs> the fact of the matter is that like it's an experience that you sort of like throw yourself into that can't mm-hmm. really be explained like scientifically, which I think is mm-hmm. what's tricky about it. It's like the same as like a writer's workshop or like a artist retreat or something like that. It's like if you were to like break it down cost by cost, it wouldn't really add up, but it's like the equivalent of like going to some sort of like remote outpost for like a set time and like having to like reckon with yourself or something like, I don't know. So yeah, it's just, and that, that to me is unfortunate that like you have to sort of, again, like buy your way into an experience like that. If someone were to say, I am going to stop working, rent a remote cabin set up like a really awesome like art studio in there and just like learn how to be a graphic designer for three years or four or two years or however long it would take. Like I'm wondering if people would take that seriously or not. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. why not too? Cause it might be like rigorous and it might be challenging in similar ways. So I don't know. I, I that's something I've thought about a lot lately. Um, it could be there's, an interesting contrast to your description of that and how I think of like the experience of like grad school or or undergrad though because like those are such community-based experiences and I really think that the community aspect is like what why you go to school yeah um because like communication like you know, I can talk to myself, right? I can, I can have that conversation, but it kind of only goes so far. So I think mm-hmm. the dialogue that you get from school, like that's where I think the future of design education, like it being preserved is very much within that experience because you can't watch a YouTube video and get that or replicate that sense of community. So I think like that's why you go to school is to be around other people who are wrestling with the same things that you can have dialogue with. Um, Mm -hmm. Because even like I've been teaching on on Zoom over the pandemic and I think the, you know, level of engagement and sense of community that you can try and build there is just not the same as like what I remember and pulling all-nighters, you know, in a shared, like, studio space. Um, So I think Mm -hmm. the community part of it makes a distinction between, like, that solo journey um, that one can take on their own. You and your friends. (laughs) Yeah, you and your friends. Friend cabin. Wednesday, and the files have been packaged and sent. You have met the deadline, and relief pours in with the sunlight. Looking up from your computer, you notice the window, and the world beyond it. Stand up and stretch, raising arms overhead, 
as you inhale and exhale. Stare out the window, noticing the blue sky, and free yourself from intention. Release yourself from judgment. Trust your intuition, the source of your inner light. Look out the window again, then look inward. Find contentment. Be at peace, knowing tomorrow will be much the same. A new deadline and continued growth. dive a little bit into your experiences at Green Dragon. Um, you worked there like pretty soon after graduating from undergrad, right? I did. Um, I, it was, I feel like very much some aligning of the planets, um, good timing because there was a designer who was leaving Green Dragon um, at the time that I was graduating and I had gone to um, a portfolio review. And when I was in when I was in undergrad, I always loved books. Um, and I was very torn because at the time I felt like I probably should have been studying web. Like, how was I ever going to keep a roof over my head if I was designing mm-hmm. books? Um, it felt like a real pipe dream. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't convince myself to like love web as much as I um, loved books. So that was definitely where all my work was focused. Um, But I think it did get like the attention of people who were reviewing and they were like, oh, you know, like you actually might be a good fit um, at Green Dragon office. I don't know like if Lorraine needs anyone right now. Um, But a couple, I had a couple different people who were connected to Lorraine and kind of like passed my information along. Um, mm-hmm. So I met and interviewed with her. I think it was actually like a little bit right before I graduated. Um, so I had kind of a month between graduating and then starting my first design job. Um, so which in hindsight, I'm like, maybe I could have used more of a vacation after <laughs> um (laughs) finishing undergrad um but I always tend to keep busy so it was good to keep the momentum going right right now um so could you describe sort of the studio a little bit like what their primary work is like and just also I know I'm not sure everyone is familiar with Lorraine Wilde but Lorraine Wilde is a you know presence in the the like she's in graphic design history books and stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, yeah. I mean, I don't know, because I get, I guess I get like starstruck pretty easily, like um, how that experience was working with like a very established designer as a young designer. Um, and maybe also how that relationship has formed over the years. Yeah. Um, well, I would say that, you know, like I read Lorraine's writing as an undergrad student and I saw her 
give a lecture. So um, similarly to you, James, I was very much like, you know, in awe <laughs> of being in her presence um, and just felt like there was so much that I could learn uh, from her. So it was definitely, definitely intimidating um, at the beginning. Um, so she is an AIGA um, medal winner and has designed, you know, numerous, I couldn't even tell you how many books. Um, and so Green Dragon Office has been focused primarily on work for cultural institutions, um, sometimes nonprofits, galleries, museums. And, you know, the studio has always been pretty small. I think at most there's been like three designers in addition to Lorraine. Um, so, you know, with that, you know, different people are leading different projects, but it doesn't have like the corporate structure of, you know, creative directors and senior art directors and so on and so forth. Um, it's a little bit of a situation where you have to like wear multiple hats um, on a project. Um, so I think like one thing I struggle with because most of my career has been in that like intimate small studio setting is I really don't know like how to translate that into uh, more corporate work essentially or like how things like translate because it's like oh well, yeah I've done all these things but I don't know what job title that would be um, in other areas of design right right true I think you are curious about yeah yeah I was I was gonna process, ask right? about I mean it I don't I'm not super familiar with Green Dragon but from what I've gathered their focus is on like book design right like photos and photo books and art books and and is that like the bulk of the work would you say yeah the bulk of the work is definitely um within books um and you know occasionally that will also go into exhibition planning and working with exhibition graphics so you know we also work on things within environments um and also branding Mm -hmm. So occasion and then the occasional web project. Um, so you know, I'd say that our our scope extends beyond books, but the you know bulk of our of our work is definitely on the printed page. Yeah, because the reason why I was going to ask was because it, I also noticed in your work when I was looking through your work that it did seem to have a heavy focus on book design, um, and I'm wondering, you know specifically with artist books and photography books like could you talk about how designing these types of books like maybe has shifted some of your perspectives in how do you approach work in general or how you approach design in general because you're often working with you know very precious like existing things and trying to like contextualize them and recontextualize them so I'm wondering what the approach is to, to doing that type of work and yeah. what the mindset is kind of no it's a great question um well i think that one way that it's really affected how i think about design is always having a large sensitivity to context so i feel that the work that we do at green dragon and something that lorraine is really passionate about is like designing without ego 
So it's not necessarily that you look at a book and are like, oh, this is a green dragon book. Um, like we're really, we're really passionate about responding to what the book is about. Um, so I think, you know, there's a lot of questions that go into working with, you know, a photographer's work versus a sculptor's work versus a painter and really understanding, you know, what their work is about and then how that can be translated into typography, into, you know, the organization of the book in general. Um, you know, I think a common misconception that happens is that when you tell people that you do books, they're like, oh, book covers. Like that's kind of the the first thing that comes to mind, um, which like I have so much admiration for, for designers who do book covers. Like that's, that's definitely always the dream. Um, but I think what I'm like really in love with is like the whole book you know, working from page to page, thinking about the macro and the micro and what that experience is going to be as like a full physical object, right, from the first page to the last. Um, and thinking about the like physical material, you know, from the paper, the binding, um, and how there's like a negotiation of like that content. And it's like you're, as the book designer, like you're holding all of those pieces and kind of like weaving it together until it like becomes realized as, as something. Um, but I think that, you know, our focus is so much on keeping our role more invisible <laughs> um, and really having the content be the main, the main focus. So I think that kind of really bleeds into how I think about design in general. Like I, I don't feel like I have a style or that's not the kind of designer I want to be. So, you know, when I'm working with students, I think I, I never push them to like have a style. Like that's a question that, you know, will come up sometimes in the classroom. Um, and, you know, like, I don't, I don't like hate on designers who have like signature styles. Like that's awesome. I think there's like all different types of ways that we can exist in this world. Um, but for me, I just don't like, maybe I also don't know how to do that. <laughs> um, but I think at this point I've been doing books and doing things this way so long that it just kind of like feels more natural to think about the, the content and the work that I'm doing the work about as opposed to like my work, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, is there a sort of like you you mentioned how people respond when you say oh I, I design books like they're like oh like book covers like is there sort of like a because there's sort of like a purity and like a honesty and like a virtuosity to book design where it's like you know you're sort of like behind the scenes and specifically the way you were describing it like it's not like necessarily the type of thing where somebody's going to uh look at it and talk about green dragon immediately or like talk about who made who worked on it like is there like how do you how do you relate to that form of design versus like the type of like that kind of like auteur like like flashy sort of approach like what do you yeah i mean i am curious about that because obviously there's t there's so many different ways to be a designer and like choosing to be a designer but like sort of exist in that kind of like um 
retreated space as opposed to like being out in front is like pretty interesting i think i don't know what the question really is but (laughs) can you talk about that a bit more yeah i mean i think i don't know my my personality in general like i'm not someone who enjoys being like center of attention i can't take a selfie to save my life um i've i've become more comfortable in front of cameras just for because of teaching on zoom um so i think like that's just been like a forced necessity um but i've always kind of enjoyed being more of a behind the scenes um person um i'm trying to think of i think i had another another thought um I think I lost it. <laughs> I mean, while you're thinking, I just think it is funny because most people would kind of describe graphic design as the ultimate, like, behind-the-scenes uh, profession, which is, like, you know, you aren't the focus. You're not supposed to be. But then you have all these people who clearly want to be the focus. Uh, yeah. <laughs> doing it, it, it. That's really funny, too, because, like, of the design professions, like, rarely is it like written about in the papers that like oh this you know branding was done by this designer or this logo shift was done by this designer. like sometimes <laughs> the, the agency bad. will be mentioned but it's not like a building right a building is like oh this is a calatrava building this is a you know naguchi building or even like furniture like this is a mm-hmm. you know you know, this is a Eames chair, this kind of like our our names are not like really in the forefront. Like I think even like interior designs, like corporate lobbies, like, you know, are 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 probably more <laughs> like noted <laughs> in design like press than um you know a book design is. But um yeah. yeah, no, that is interesting. I think people are probably more familiar with publishers. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that would be a more visible part of the book. Um, I remembered what I was going to say, actually. And uh, I think specifically working on books for artists, I think like being in a place where you're negotiating with another creative is a really specific place to be in because, you know, I've worked on branding for non-creative endeavors and it's just such a different client relationship um because you know in that scenario it's like i am the artist in the room right i am the creative Mm -hmm. like when you're working with people who like don't know how to distinguish between art and design right like i've i've definitely had that moment where they're like oh well you're the artist and i'm like well maybe i guess technically i have studied some art but like i'm i'm not an artist with a capital a that's not even what you're paying me for um but i think you know with book design working with artists right it's like you're you're in this space where you're both creatives you're both visual and trying to you know mediate what that means on a page um you know and and all artists are of of course different right some are very hands-on some are hands-off you know, I've worked with photographers who would, you know, hate it if you like cut in a pixel into their photograph, right? It is like when you think of like documentary photography, right? You know, you show the outer frame of the film because you want it to be known that this was shot in this way. 
um, versus photographers who are like, oh, I don't care, just just make it look good, right? And like they're they're open to maybe the designer's perspective of finding a narrative in their work, and they're interested in that collaboration with another creative to tell a story. Um, so I think like you know even within one niche of like photography books, there's like a lot of diverse outcomes that could happen just depending on what that dialogue is between you as the designer and and the photographer. Hmm. Um, I want to switch gears just a tiny bit, but also follow the thread of um, context and the importance of context in your design work. Um, after working at Green Dragon, you decided to geographically uproot the context of your life and move to South Korea. Um, I think on paper, the, the was to pursue an MFA at Kungmin University. Um, but I know personally, there was a lot more there. So if you don't mind sharing what that sort of change was and like what the motivations was and how your experience started to kind of evolve as you got there. Yeah. So, I mean, I, at that point, I'd been working at Green Dragon um, for about five years and, you know, I was very happy and comfortable. I had definitely, like, you know, gotten into my groove. Um, and, you know, Lorraine continues to be a mentor to me. And, you know, at that time, she had mentioned that, like, you know, Green Dragon wasn't necessarily a place that you were supposed to, like, stay at forever. Um, to, like, almost think of it as more of, like, as a residency, you know, as opposed to, like, a place that I'm going to stay for <laughs> my entire life. Um and so I, you know, I'd kind of been thinking about potentially what my next step would be. And another another gem of advice that she gave me was that, you know, because I had gotten a private school art education for undergrad at Otis, there wasn't really like a great need for me to go to grad school for design um, in terms of the quality of education I got. Um, I was also a lot older when I went there. Um, so it was kind of a grad school experience already. Um, but she was saying that like, you know, reasons to go to grad school were if I wanted to teach, right, because you need to have a master's degree to do that. Um, or if there was like a place that I wanted to be, like wanted to have a presence, um, wanted to do like some kind of research project, um, that grad school is a good way to kind of get to that location, right? Like you can fly anywhere, but a way to kind of um, embed yourself um, in a meaningful way. Um, and for me, that was South Korea. Um, so I was born there and adopted to the U.S. Um, when I was a baby. So I, you know, came to the U.S. not knowing any Korean, not speaking at all, um, and, you know, very much identify as being from California. Um, but I think my unknown origins in Korea were something that I was always really curious about because it was, you know, it seemed like a fictional place almost because I, even though I had been born there, I had been separated from it for so long that it seemed as like fictitious as like Narnia or something, right? Wow, like it's yeah. like, oh, I've heard about this. People talk about it. Um, but like, it just is so intangible. Um, and I was also really curious about, you know, Korean graphic design because 
at Otis, I had, you know, tons of like history classes, design theory, you know, design history, art history, like where these converged. But that convergence was always within the Western design canon. And that was like where a lot of the focus was. Um, And there's nothing wrong with learning that, right? Because that's still part of the world. But I think that I saw my design education experience echoing what I was personally experiencing, where it's just like very Western based, but there's more to the world to that. And there's also like specifically my own personal history more. So I wanted to kind of fill both of those aspects, both personally and professionally. Um, And so I, you know, just started doing some internet searching and I actually came across um, our dear friend Chris Rowe um, and his bundle project. And so I, you know, just sent a friendly email um, (laughs) because I I like written correspondence and um, Chris wrote back to me and you know, we started kind of an email exchange and he told me about, you know, some of the MFA programs in Korea. And so, you know, I was, I was curious about that because I felt like I didn't, while there are many fabulous and impressive um, grad programs in the States, um, and many of my colleagues have attended those, I didn't feel for me personally that I would get what I was looking for, um, in a grad school experience by doing that like it would be it would be fun it would be cool I'm sure I would have like met some amazing people but it also would have felt like a continuation of like what I had already been doing Um, whereas like going to Korea being in a totally different environment being around you know different design philosophies different life philosophies I felt would be a way to diversify um, the experience I had already had. Um, so through through that um, conversation with Chris, I learned about, you know, these different design programs. And I went over to Korea um, for the first time since I had been born. Um, and like immediately upon landing, I was like, okay, yeah, I want to I study here. Um, I, I felt like I couldn't commit to a program having not physically been there. Right. Um, but it didn't take me very long to like get that intangible information that I needed <laughs> um, to make that decision. Yeah. How was that first moment kind of uh, landing in Incheon and those first few weeks of like being in a place that you were born but you're experiencing from a whole new perspective now that you're, I mean, you were like a fully formed adult at that point, <laughs> like in your, in your mid twenties, right? Um, or your late I was actually thirties. Uh, oh, in your thirties. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Like, um, I mean, not to get too into the weeds, but like, yeah, just that physical feeling of like returning to, uh, returning to Korea, experiencing these things. And then as your studies went through, like, being exposed to Korean design in a Korean setting. I think that is actually probably, for me, I think that's also been refreshing and interesting being in Korea as a Korean American. That like, as you said, like I had this thing where it's like, I kind of just assume that like, because there's such a strong Western design education here that like everyone kind of thinks of design in a uh, Western mindset. And there is, 
an element of that, like a strong element of that, whether that's good or bad. But um, there are like subtle difference in philosophies, sort of like what's important, like form is important in here in a different way than I think is in the States um, or in Western cultures. Like, <clears throat> I think there's a formal appreciation for like execution and like, there's a Korean word called milto, which is sort of like, um, I guess kind of like resolution or like detail, like high detail, high finish, high polish, high like, um, so there's these subtle differences, I think, in pers in perspectives that, you know, I think that it's not like something that hits you like right away. I think that it's something that you, you grow an appreciation for as you're there. So I'm curious, like, what that initial feeling was, and then how kind of these aesthetic properties of quote unquote Korean design started to kind of settle in your mind. Yeah. So I think initially, initially I think my reaction to everything was just kind of very emotional and like an intuitive feeling of like that I was in the right place at that time. Um, it was also very surreal I felt like there was a lot of new stimuli um, in all forms um, that at the same time had like a familiarity to it. Um, like there, I don't know, there's just, there's just like a strong, it's difficult to explain. It's also difficult to explain without sounding too like wooey. Um, but there's, there's a, a presence that I felt in Korea that I just hadn't felt elsewhere um, that I felt pretty immediately. And, you know, I questioned if maybe because like growing up in South, where I did grow up in Southern California, like there weren't very many Asians around. So I grew up feeling very, very minority and very out of place, um, especially being adopted transracially. So, um, so I grew up in a, in a white family Um so I thought that some of it could just be like, oh, well, this is my first time being around like people that look like me. Um, but I visited Japan while I was, while I was in Korea. And it was interesting because Japan felt very different to me. Um, I felt more American there um, also because I don't speak Japanese at all. So, you know, there was kind of that more tourist feeling. Um, but it just, yeah, it didn't have the same resonance. Um, so I think that, you know, kind of going back to your question about things like evolving in terms of like Korean aesthetics and absorbing that, I think that there was a lot that I was taking in. Um, so like, there were a lot of details that I would notice that I feel like most people didn't care about or, or didn't see. Um, and that was interesting. Um, in my MFA studies, because I would bring up observations that I had just like taking the subway or like, you know, patterns that I would see that I would, that were emerging just because I was paying attention to like absolutely everything. And very often, you know, people like, oh yeah, I, I hadn't, I hadn't really like noticed that or thought about it because they were so used, it was just so normal. Um, so then that really kind of got me thinking about questioning what is normal and like kind of where at what point does something become normal 
right? Mm, like if you move yeah. into like a new apartment, like at what point is it no longer like a new apartment? It becomes home. Mm-hmm. Like where is that that boundary? Um, and like my thesis advisor was saying that in some ways the observations that I was making about Korean design or, you know, aesthetics um, were valuable because he was saying like, well, I can't see it that way. Like mm-hmm. I can't like unknow the things that I know or like a lifetime of, you know, biases or knowledge that you've constructed. Um, yeah, I think I, I, I appreciate that perspective as well. I think now that I've been here six years, I think a lot of those those kind of properties, like there are certain like visual patterns and there's certain like construction materials and like um, <clears throat> just like the sort of the physical properties of the landscape here that are not as fascinating to me anymore, but I still <laughs> see them as different. And I think having that perspective, that third party expect perspective is really, really refreshing for both the culture uh, in Korea, but also just as like a, have, have that having that kind of perspective on culture in general. And I think that's like, and not to get like too political or whatever, but I think that's why we need diversity in voices. And um, especially like, you know, for me in this context where I'm in a very homogenized design culture, um, I think, I think I sometimes I do have conversations with Korean designers where they are grateful and appreciative of my sort of like Korean American perspective. Um, but I think we could be more active in celebrating those voices and voices support now we love hearing from the design community call us at 202-507-9158 please share your story with us after the tone we'll do our best to respond on our podcast please leave a name or alias design role and location thank you for your call personal journey there right and just like um if you could share a little bit about the personal journey and then what i thought was really beautiful was i didn't like get to spend a whole lot of time with your thesis but i know the approach that you took and just like how you kind of synthesized everything because for me just as like a you know outsider like I'm sure there were points that were like super overwhelming just because there's so much that you had to experience and like process. Um, so I'm just curious how you kind of synthesized everything. Um, and I'm sure you're still processing in some, some regard, but having to have that like document of the thesis. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, how that um, process was for you. Yeah, so my thesis work, um, I'm, I've always been very passionate and interested in aspects of identity um, and how identity is communicated, how it's visualized, how it's asserted. Um, and I think that personally, you know, I was at this very specific place of being an adult in the country that I was born in, that I had left as an infant. Um, I would say that like, while I was in grad school, I had kind of like the lifestyle of like a teenager or like 20 something because I was living in a dorm um, at day. So, you know, there's kind of all these different um, experiences um, that were informing that. But specifically, you know, in, in a search for understanding what Koreanness was to me, I think in the research that I was doing, both in conversations that I was having with people who were native Korean um, and Korean American, like, you know, James, we had plenty of great conversations. Um, you know, I realized that the, you know, journey that I was on is something that South Korea itself has been on. Um, you know, the, mm. the way Korean yeah. history has been with, you know, colonization, mm -hmm. with the presence of um, the U.S. Army. You know, there's all been all of these outside influences which have really affected the trajectory of Korea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. ways um you know i don't want to get too historical or political but i would say like you know there's been moments that have like irreparably or you know in a no turning back moment have like changed and altered the history of korea totally. Um, totally. and thinking about that and reflecting about that and how that would affect like a national identity i realized that like in some ways kind of the thing that made me most Korean was my separation from Korea. Mm. Wow. Um, and seeing that kind of that parallel um, and also like how like Korean designers were trying to like find their identity within design. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I was really interested in talking to and like looking at Korean designers who hadn't been educated abroad right. um, because I think, you know, so many, of the amazing designers that we know of, we know because they studied here in the US or right. in Europe. Um, so I was really interested about the people who like didn't leave um, and kind of what that looked like, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of design and, you know, what that experience was like. Um, so that was part of it. But I think it was also realizing that when it comes to, you know, design, expanding that into visual culture, like I wasn't really drawing lines into like, oh, this is graphic design. And like, I was really looking at kind of patterns that I was noticing across all aspects of visual culture and both high and low culture. So I was really interested in vernacular signage. Um, in addition to things that were like intangible history, um, because I think when looking at Korea's history, there's so many aspects where, you know, buildings no longer exist, right? Or mm -hmm. if you visit a 
so-called like historical site, it's actually then, you know, reconstructed because it was burned down. Right. Um, so that kind of led me to like think about the intangible aspects of identity. So like the culmination of my thesis was actually not visual. Um, I'm interested in visualizing it, but it was more about thinking about identity as a methodology um, and a methodology that kind of has moving parts. So I was really inspired by um, Brian Eno's oblique strategies, thinking about how you can have these sort of serendipitous moments that might alter or change the path of something in its creation. Um, but the methodology that I created, which also could be kind of abstract prose, <laughs> um, you know, I was all of the instructions, so to speak, you know, could be rearranged and all related back to some aspect of Korean identity that I had been looking at or studying, whether it was, you know, kind of more behavioral custom or like a visual pattern. Yeah, I love that, like, historical um, synthesis you have for Korea and, like, also relating that to your own story but also just like, I don't know, like I, I've always appreciated um, your perspective as kind of a very measured um, perspective on both the macro things that are going on in your life as well as the like micro details. Um, and just like, you know, we've had conversations before about your journey in Korea and like your studies in Korea, but um, I'm curious also like how that like, was Korea like completely new to you? Like, had you grown up with some exposure to Korean culture or just like, was it fresh? And I think it, we've, we've mentioned this a little bit before, but um, just like, how, what level of sponge, I guess, were you? <laughs> <laughs> I like that analogy. Yeah. Um, so growing up, I had very little exposure um, to Korean culture. Um, I think as an adult, I sought it out. So I, you know, took it upon myself to take Korean classes. And so, you know, I learned Hangul, but it's really hard to learn the language only spending two hours a night yeah. on a Tuesday <laughs> um, while working full time. Um, so, you know, prior to coming to Korea, my language skills were very low um you know and they've increased since then um but it's a lifelong process for sure totally um and interestingly enough green dragon's located in k-town um in la oh, wow. so Interesting. on my lunch breaks it was easy enough to like there's actually a myeonggung kyoja like down the street from <laughs> green dragon yeah. um you know, and there's also a really good Salangpang place. So yeah. I would say that like I had some exposure to food. So I feel like, you know, when I was first coming to Korea, people expected me to like love bibimbap or bulgogi or, you know, just like the like go to the yeah. what are the what are the three Korean foods that people know? Um, you know, so I was impressing people with my chopstick skills and that I could eat kimchi. Um, so I was like I was above that. Um yeah. But, you know, I wouldn't say that, like, there was, I was coming with a lot of knowledge. Yeah. Um, and I think the reason why I asked that is um, 
because I think your perspective is very unique and different from mine as a Korean American. Whereas, like, I probably had came to Korea like I came to Korea like when I was young in like middle school. Um, mm-hmm. But like, I remember that moment of culture shock where it's like I thought I was familiar with this culture, but I had no idea, and I also wasn't accepted by the culture. Um, so that was a whole another personal kind of ordeal or or thing that I had to process, but. Yeah, like I think that to me, like you're you have like a, you're coming from a perspective that's both like deeply rooted in in origin, like literally an origin, and uh, mm-hmm. but then also very fresh and um, new uh, as like an adult. Um, so I think that dichotomy I think is very fascinating to me. I think it's time to. Uh asked the question that we always ask which you know it's it's always a challenge of when to ask it because it's pretty abrupt but i think we shared it with you before which is uh could you share um a lasting experience from your design career that has affected you emotionally or psychologically and i don't know if this overlaps with things we've already discussed but uh feel free to go broad and it doesn't have to be uh, negative or positive, but yeah, um, I think my my joke is everything <laughs> because <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to not be affected. Um, but no, if I were to narrow down an experience, um, and I think Korea is a good backdrop for that because it was a very different experience um, than the like professional experience I'd had. Um, back in back in LA um, so I I did some different things while I was in Korea um, there was some freelance work that I did um, I had a really amazing collaboration um, with a gallery in Seoul um, gallery factory which is now factory two um, and that was really amazing um, but I also had a brief experience working at a small studio in Seoul. Um, And initially I thought that was going to be comfortable because like, as I mentioned, like, you know, my experience Mm -hmm. with Lorraine at Green Dragon office was a a small studio. So that felt um, very similar, but I think, you know, I hadn't worked, I hadn't worked in, Korea professionally and I would say that there is a difference in Korean working culture um, than the U.S. like there's you know a lot of hierarchy things to adhere to um, just a totally different social interaction Um, and that's just like speaking broadly in terms of like company culture and and that kind of thing um but the, the small studio I was working at, um, I was the only designer in that, in that scenario. Um, the, other, the other members were other creatives, but working on um, different aspects of projects. Um, and at that time I was in grad school and like one of the big reasons I, I did it was because I was really missing that kind of collaborative environment um, that I'd had at Green Dragon. Um, And 
what I realized though is that the like work life boundary or balance um, quickly disappeared um, because I I was hired initially as being part time, which I felt you know seemed reasonable because I was in grad school. So it's like I don't have the ability to take on a full time job. Um, but I think the the creep of expectation just kind of built um, to the point where at, at perhaps one of the lower moments. Um, so I mentioned earlier that I, I lived in a dorm while I was in grad school. And if, um, Drew, you may not be familiar with Korean dorm life, um, but you can have a curfew. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so I was uh, in my 30s with a, with a curfew. Um, and so the workaround was uh, the like studio manager picked me up uh, from campus at midnight so that I could keep working uh, at the studio past curfew. Um, and then I continued to work until about 6 a.m., at which point I was not functioning so well and needed to go home and shower and take a nap back at the dorm so I could start working again at noon um, because of the intense deadlines for this project. Um, which, yeah, that's not yeah. sustainable. Um, not at all. Maybe like yeah. once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, so in this scenario, what's the curfew? The curfew is midnight? Uh, the curfew was, I think, 1 a.m. So, oh, he mm. would pick you up before curfew. Yeah. Cuz you were you were allowed to be anywhere you wanted to be but you can't come in at that time or something. What, yeah, so the dorms close from like 1 to 5. So you can't leave or enter? I think you actually I'm not sure if you can leave. You might be able to leave. So I had a I had a studio space like in the um design building. Um so I would usually work there. Um, because the other detail about my dorm room is that it was a four-person dorm. <laughs> so I'm sharing a room with three Whoa. other people um, who aren't going to take kindly to me uh, working into the wee hours. <laughs> wow. Um, but yeah, I'd, I would have had to have either slept in my studio um, or continue to work at the <laughs> studio office. that I was working yeah. at. Um, but yeah, I would say... That probably wasn't the like biggest moment um, that I had. So I I had a lot of personal um, aspects going on while I was in Korea um, outside of, of grad school, dealing with kind of my um, Korean family and like that part of my past. And while I was working on a project for the studio, um, as I mentioned, the deadlines and everything were so tight that I was having to like work literal all nighters. Um, and they were just like, wasn't time to do anything. I actually had a message um, where I was getting a photograph of my birth mother for the first time. And this was like, it's hard to describe this moment um, because I was like there at work and I was realizing that this was kind of one of those moments where I realized how committed to my job 
that I was um, because like this was like such a like huge moment in my life Mm -hmm. and I was like okay I obviously wouldn't be able to like look at this and keep working Um, so I just didn't look at it and kept working and let it sit on my phone until I got the job done and you know it was like no one was like telling me to do that um and I've always known that I've like I'm very committed (laughs) in general as a person I'm very like loyal that's really like something that's important to me um but I think that that was like a moment that really one showed me how committed I could be um but also made me feel like really questioning um why I would ever be that committed uh, at the same time. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think the crux of the story here is about priorities and that you are willing to deprioritize your personal experience for a uh, work experience. But at the same time, looking at the specific experience, I think is also about giving the right space and the appropriate space for that that, that moment. To yeah, happen. yeah. But still, yeah. I, I mean, most ways you look at it, it's like you sacrifice your personal desires for work. And <laughs> but I mean, what actually like, and I think this is what I I, I kind of gather is more the not the moral of the story, but like. What I gather is a, in terms of a conversation point, I think for our listeners too, is is I from from hearing you speak about your experiences at Green Dragon and just your approach to work in general, it's a good question for us to ask about like how much of work defines our identities as designers. Like, you know, mm-hmm. design is a labor intensive thing, and I think oftentimes, like it's it's much harder for us to just say it's a job. And I think that when it's so wrapped up in our identity, that being productive and making work and being creative is so much a part of our identities, that I think it's often hard to strike those boundaries. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that seems like an extreme moment where that, you know, to me, it sounded like a, a, like on top of your loyalties. Like, I think for me, when I was hearing your story, it's like, it's not really about your commitment to that studio or the company or the job really, but it's like your commitment to yourself and how important it is to finish the work. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. no, that's, that's a much more positive spin on it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thank you for sharing uh, that experience. Cause I think that's, it's very, it, 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 it's, there's elements of it that's very heavy and personal and vulnerable. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think that like, it's 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 interesting how we prioritize things in design i think um like we say that's why i think like for me like it's more than just the deadline for me hearing you say this uh, talk about that experience like it's more your commitment to one your personal ethics and like you've made the commitment and you're going to deliver on that commitment and two like i think it's also um just a a passion for the work in some ways, maybe like, uh, just like that's sort of what you want to remain focused on and, 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 and be, um, be paying attention to when 
things that like other other things can come up and should or should not take more priority um but just a housekeeping note uh one um we usually go about like an hour hour 15 um but i also really want to talk about your experience teaching uh and then two i need to run to the bathroom real quick (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah so how about we take like a quick break kind of you know switch gears and then we'll resume in like two minutes yeah that sounds sounds good sounds good okay cool i'll be right back um so yeah as we were talking about um work-life balance i think the other thing that i wanted to talk to you about was well several things but the first thing is after you know kind of uprooting yourself in moving to Korea and finishing your your MFA studies, you uh, uprooted yourself again. Uh, rather than <laughs> returning to Southern California, you moved to New York. Um, and I think career-wise, too, you decided to take a pretty, not radical, but like a different direction, which I think is pretty common for a post-MFA direction. But um, yeah, could you describe the direction you took and then how you've been, what you've been up to since then now that's been a few years yeah um i mean first it's crazy it's been years <laughs> it feels like, i don't know the last couple of years have just gone by so quickly um so yeah i i've decided to come back to the states um and i had never lived in new york just visited um but always wanted to so it felt like New York was calling. Um, I'd lived in LA for 11 years. Um, and I still, you know, I still love LA. I have nothing, nothing bad to say about it. Um, but you know, wanted to experience something else. Um, so came to Brooklyn, um, and started working, started teaching at Queens college. So teaching was something that was really important to me. Like I knew when I was in grad school that I wanted to teach and, uh, I got to, kind of shadow and TA um, with Song Ziok at uh, Kumunde while I was in grad school. So that was a really great experience to get to work with mm-hmm. undergrad students in Korea um, and see kind of how that experience in the classroom was different um, than what I had experienced in the States. Um, yeah, so I, I started teaching at Queens College and going freelance full time. Um, I also, you know, because of the pandemic, all of our lives were on Zoom. So geography ceased to be, you know, as prominent of a feature in things. And I felt that more emotional geography (laughs) became more important. Um, So, you know, I had already been continuing to work with Lorraine um, after grad school, but, you know, we're continuing to collaborate on projects. Um, So I'm still still a part of um, Green Dragon office now, but the Brooklyn wing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And yeah, doing, and then also, you know, taking on other freelance clients and projects. Um, And I'm also teaching at Pratt Institute. So splitting my time between two schools and freelance. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that, that's another work-life balance challenge. Yeah. We haven't (laughs) talked much to people in that position who are kind of like you know doing it all and also teaching (laughs) in multiple places 
curious about that as a balance and also as like a kind of shifting of your headspace constantly, you know, from one context to another. We started out talking about context, so maybe this is a good time to bring it up. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so many people say how rewarding teaching is and how it helps like, you know, inform their practice. Um, And I think for me, it's, I really love, you know, I mentioned before about graphic design being visual communication, but communication being a big part of that. And a lot of what I love about teaching is the dialogue that happens in the classroom. Um, You know, seeing seeing how that space can be transformed um, by the people who are in it. Um, So it's really interesting to me to see how a class can be so different from semester to semester once you have like a new group. Like even if it's the same class, like it becomes a totally different space just because of who is in there, right? So like the the students really give that class the context. Um, And I tend to I, I like to approach teaching in a very responsive way um, to make like a weird, like weird web analogy, you know, thinking about responsive <laughs> design, whether you're looking at it on the phone or on a desktop. Um, so I, you know, obviously courses have specific learning outcomes, but I really believe in like meeting students where they are and trying to, you know, focus on that communication because there isn't necessarily one size fits all because everyone's coming from a totally different background, a totally different set of experiences. What they think graphic design is might be totally different than what I'm talking about um, in terms of graphic design. Um, So yeah, I don't know if that answers (laughs) answers the question or not. (laughs) Yeah. um, Also specifically about your teaching, I wanted to talk to you about the context of Queens College. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, you know, the three of us have gone through very prestigious private art school institutions. Um, so could you describe Queens College and how that might be a little different? Um, and yeah, and then I have a follow-up question to that. Yeah, so Queens College is different in that it's a four-year school. So, you know, I think at the private art schools, you are concentrated for three out of the four of your years on on your major for the most part, right? You might have a foundational year um, where you're learning the basics, but then you're getting really concentrated um, in those subsequent years. Whereas a four-year school, I feel like there's less time that you get on your specific major. Um, So I, I actually relate to my Queens College students a lot because even though I did go to Otis, um, my transcript paperwork is really complicated because prior to going to Otis, I actually went to a state school in California and I've gone to like three or four different community colleges. Um, So my educational experience is really broad in that sense. Like I've been in a lot of different classroom experiences um, because I'm a first generation college student. Um, I'm the first woman on both sides of my family to have any kind of college degree. Um, so a lot of the students that I have at Queens College are also, you know, first generation. They also are working, um, and they might also be supporting their family at the same time. 
um, is going to school. So I think it's a different, it's a different space when you know that someone has that much on their plate. Um, I think that it contextualizes the role of design in a very different way, um, as opposed to, you know, if you don't have those responsibilities to juggle on top of your studies. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that um, what I'm curious about is like how to make, or I'm just curious, like, yeah, is design really present in their lives and like a priority in their lives when they're juggling so much? And maybe that's very presumptuous of me, but like, I think it's like a educational question in, in general. Like, how do you make their education mean something um, when there's so many other things they have to take care of? Well, I think that, you know, I think earlier we talked about design, not just being like opening up Photoshop, you know, right. it's not just making a poster. It's also the thinking behind that and the process behind that. So I focus on that. And I think ultimately design is about problem solving. So I mm -hmm. think that, you know, design thinking can really help affect different areas of your life because I think that like the themes that often come up in their projects because I, I tend to give my students a lot of freedom in picking areas of interest to work with so you know like mm -hmm. mental health comes up a lot you know identity comes up as well um, so I think it gives an area to see where design intersects with these other other aspects um, that they're interested in in their lives and also affecting things um yeah yeah i think yeah that's really that's really interesting oh i was just curious about you know as somebody who comes also from a family in a different way that like nobody in my family was ever like really connected to arts or design you know, like, obviously not in this, I'm not at all the first of my family to go to college or anything like that. But, you know, coming from a background that is not, doesn't really value that as like necessarily a career. Uh, <laughs> I'm also curious, like, how that impacted you, like, how your family reacted to the, or like how you got interested in it, and then how your family reacted to it. And then also like, how these these students who are maybe coming from families where they're they have to support their family and design is clearly not the most lucrative or like important thing in your life when you're you know when you have a lot of more important responsibilities so i'm just curious if that if there's a resonance there and and how that how you like reconcile that in your brain yeah well i would say that definitely like my family was like worried about me right or like you know I don't think anyone really understood what I could do or you know how I think again that kind of mix up between you're an artist or a designer because people don't really understand what design is um you know I kind of just forged my own path and because I was paying for it it didn't really mm. um it didn't really matter um I mean that's kind of the uh upside to uh supporting yourself is that since no one's giving you the money to do things you can kind of just 
do whatever you want. Um, <laughs> you're not beholden to <laughs> beholden to other people's wishes for that. Um, but yeah, I would say that, I mean, it's also interesting, I mean, kind of going back to one of the earlier questions, like what makes Queens College different is that graphic design is in the art department. Mm. And that's really fascinating to me because I think in my educational experience, like design is very far away from, from art, right? Like mm -hmm. <laughs> the art department doesn't want to have anything to do with the design department. Fine art is very separate. Um, but just on a pure philosophical level, right? These students are like part of the art department. Um, so it has, I don't know, an interesting effect, I think, and like how you would view it if that's how you're entering into it. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, students are always interested, I mean, across the board, no matter what, what school you're coming from, is like, how am I going to get a job? You know, the what is what is this all going to amount to? Um, is the big yeah. question. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, I guess that's a big question for anybody kind of going into a field that can either be incredibly... <laughs> financially helpless or if you're successful it can be whatever you want it to be but yeah I guess the the entry point it's not like you know you go to law school and you get your first job at a at a law firm and you're making like 150 200 thousand dollars like right out right away <laughs> minimum whatever like I guess we we all know that that's not really what we're getting ourselves into yeah. but um, so in summary, we like to have a, uh, mantra on the podcast and I have one that I'd like to suggest. Um, it can go either way, but I want to say prioritize <laughs> context or contextualize priorities. Ooh, I like the, I like the double. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or it could just be context is a priority or like oh yeah that's priority yeah priority is context or context is priority something like that I don't know I like both I'm I like context is things. priority yeah <laughs> <laughs> parentheticals is also I liked when you mm. said you use a lot of parentheses in your emails which is a tangent. <laughs> tangential bit of information but i feel like it kind of could encapsulate a lot of the conversation because it's like there's always like i mean parentheticals are context right it's yes, usually like exactly. additional yeah. context <laughs> and then it's also like but this but also this and just so you know this uh <laughs> so maybe i don't know I, I i found that interesting and i think like it sounds like your story is like a lot of a lot of parentheticals Yes, uh, I come with a lot of footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a lot of contexts, yeah. Um, especially like even in your current like work, you know, yeah, doing work for different totally. people and then teaching at different places and working with different types of people. Multi hyphenate, as they <laughs> the kids say these days. <laughs> yeah. What's the other one? Uh, 
agnostic medium agnostic yeah medium agnostic yeah oh that makes me sound a lot fancier than i am (laughs) (laughs) or just agnostic in general uh is there anything you wanted to share that you haven't had a chance to touch on since i don't know i feel like i just want to give you the chance if there is any anything else you want to get off your chest um not that i can think of i feel like i've probably talked both of your ears off enough (laughs) oh no no totally not totally not totally not um but yeah this has been a great conversation thank you so